Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. This summer, as protests against police brutality and systemic racism swept across the U.S., they sparked a movement that traveled around the world. As outrage spreads over the killing of George Floyd in the U.S., protesters have taken to the streets around the world. In countries from Brazil to South Korea. Defying lockdown measures or foregoing government advice, still they came in their hundreds of thousands. It's now a global movement, with thousands taking to the streets. We've got strength coming from, you know, Latin America, the Caribbean and the U.S. The demonstrators are clear that there are huge challenges facing their own country. In Belgium, it was quite surprising to see, almost especially because of the way in which the country has really undergone this kind of national amnesia over its brutal legacy in Congo. Protests are taking place here in Brussels in solidarity with the Black Lives Matter movement in the United States. For the first time, we were, I think, more than 15,000 people with different ages, different origin of people. You could see children, mixed people, white people, Maghreban people. There were thousands of people in Brussels and Antwerp and in other cities who came out. And I saw people crying, shouting, proud. And, you know, for the first time, they opened their voices. What it did was for not just the government, but the monarchy as well, to at least a form of action that they had never taken before. This is Behind the Money. I'm Amy Keene. On this episode, we go to Belgium, where a national reckoning on a brutal colonial past is brought into question the role of the companies at the heart of this pursuit. More than 10,000 people marched in Brussels on the 7th of June in protest over police brutality against Black people in the U.S. and in Belgium. It was the month of the 60th anniversary of independence of Congo, which gave us a power that we never got to before. Gia Abersar is a colonial cultural journalist, activist, and one of the organizers of the June 7th mobilization. So it was really a month of intensity, of solidarity, but also never again. It means never again regarding the systematic racism, also the police violence here, there in the U.S., how it affects everyday brown and black bodies. So we all became very aware about that. And that's why King Philip of Belgium presented his regrets towards Congolese. It's an annual tradition. The King of Belgium writes a letter to the president of the DRC on the anniversary of independence, usually lauding the great ties and shared history between the two countries. But this time, he 
offered, the phrase he used was his deepest regrets uh, for the brutality of Leopold II's reign and also colonialism afterwards. And, and he linked it to the systemic racism that exists in Belgium today. Neil Munchie is the FT's West Africa correspondent. And this is really significant. It, it wasn't an apology. He was not apologizing for anything, but this recognition, this acknowledgement, this sort of these deep regrets uh, was a big step for an institution that was celebrating Belgium bringing civilization to Congo just a few years ago. It marks the first time a reigning Belgian monarch has communicated remorse for the atrocities committed in the European country's colonial past. Neil was in Brussels this summer, waiting out the pandemic. And after seeing the protests, he took to the streets of the city with a question. There are a lot of statues of King Leopold II in Belgium because he was known as the Builder King. He'd sort of funded a lot of the public works and sort of grand architecture across the country. But the most famous one is in Brussels, right next to the Royal Palace. And it is a massive bronze statue of a bearded King Leopold mounted on a horse. I went to the statue one day and I saw around the back, there's a little plaque at the base that says in French, the copper and tin from the statue is from the Belgian Congo. It was donated by the Union Minier of Haute Katanga. The question was, how does a company reckon with its colonial legacy? Union Minier was the most important company and the most important, kind of the only colony that really mattered for Belgium. It was formed in 1906. It produced half of Congo's revenues, 70% of his exports, and these minerals were going through Antwerp's port, which is what helped turn it into, by mid-century, the second biggest port in the world after Liverpool. They were an engine for the Belgian economy during both world wars uh, when Belgium was governing from exile. It was Congo's economy that kept it going, that funded that government in exile. There are so many ways in which this company's products and its work, you know, exploiting the Congo helped expand the scope of what was possible in Belgium economically. This company, the Union Minière du Haut Katanga, was created with the purpose of digging these extraordinary, unique copper layers in one of the far eastern regions of the Congo, namely in the province named Katanga. Guy Van Temze is an economic historian who studied Belgium's colonial history and the history of the companies involved in the Congo. The company, Union Minière de Haute Katanga, is often referred to as UMHK or just Union Minière. When copper was needed for the war industry in, in many countries. For weapons and machinery. The world markets were really eager to have copper. The Union Minière got really into business and uh, huge profits began to be made at the end of the 1910s. The development of the copper mining in Katanga by the Union Minière, of course, was only possible through uh, intense labor. Almost everything was done by hand with shovels and peaks and so on. This uh, implied the use of very many Congolese workers. For all of the abundant natural resources that caused European nations to flock to Africa in the 1880s, Africans made the colonial project work. Leopold was known for these atrocities he'd committed, 
uh, in Congo, including sort of cutting the hands off of rubber farmers. And, you know, this caused an international outcry. He had to hand the state over to the Belgian government, which was supposed to do a better job. And that's not what happened. The Belgian state took over via companies like Union Minier, and they had essentially the same labor practices, forced labor, forced recruitment. It's with the help of the public authorities, of the, the help of the force publique, the army, the colonial army of the Congo, that people were dragged out of their native villages, uh, taken from their local communities to go and work in abominable conditions in the Katanga copper fields. Going into villages and striking deals with the chief to haul off the men, tying their wives and daughters up until they agreed to sign on to work. You know, when you have a village and all of the men who farm there are shipped off to the mines in another part of the country, it had devastating effects on the agricultural production of Congo for years. With results that we, of course, can understand, high desertion rates, and many laborers just fled. Uh, many others also died due to the appalling conditions, due to the very hot labor conditions. Uh, a working day at the Union Minière in the 1910s, early 1920s, a working day averaged about uh, 15 or 16 hours work a day. So there was a sort of destructive mechanism installed where the authorities of the Union Minière, with the help of the public uh, forces, had to go and look and force people from ever more distant regions to come to the minefields. They then, in the sort of mid-20s, started to realize that they had a problem because most of their workers were dying or fleeing. So they needed to figure out a way to keep their workforce stable. And they came up with this system that was sort of an extreme form of social engineering, where they kind of controlled everything in their employees and their families' lives from birth till death. Union Minier built entire villages for their workers. The company owned the houses, the schools, and the hospitals. They built cinemas and organized sports for those who signed on to long-term contracts and kept working. It was a way to manage and control a pipeline of workers. When the politique de stabilisation or stabilisation policy went on, the company did not need anymore from the 1930s onwards the forced labour that it needed before. Most of the workers were indeed born into the camps as the sons of workers who had been uh, stabilized there in the first generation. Which, along with new machinery, led to greater productivity. So much so that by the 1930s, Union Minière produced about 13% of the world's copper. The advantages that Belgium gained from having a colony were on the level of private businesses. Belgium and the Belgian entrepreneurs and the Belgian uh, economy could have control on an extraordinary influx of primary ores, of primary uh, producers that were transformed in Belgium itself, where the copper was then transformed into usable products to be re-exported in other countries. This is where you start to see the creation of wealth based on the natural resources in Congo benefiting commerce in Belgium. 
As the copper export increased, so did the number of Belgian companies needed to process it into a usable material. So Belgium transformed itself in, as sort of in a certain sense as the the crossroads for re-exporting products that were imported from the Congo but transformed rudimentarily in Belgium itself. Today, historians are asking just how much of Belgium's wealth can be traced back to a place such as Congo. Like, how can you trace a link in between the wealth of uh, Belgium and the colonial past? Belgium has been able to become a real nation and to prosper until today. Anne Wetsi Mpoma is an art historian, curator and activist who was born in Belgium to Congolese parents. The richest family of the country still find uh, you can trace their fortune into the colonial history. When you arrive at the airport of Brussels here, you see we in Belgium, we love diamonds. There are no diamonds in Belgium. Diamonds come from Central Africa. Belgium is well-renowned for its chocolate. There are no cacao bones in Belgium. The problem with this economic exploitation of the Congo was the violence of the systems. The problem was the systemic killing of the Congolese people there at that time. The problem was the enslavement of the people. Historians estimate that during King Leopold's reign, 10 million Congolese died, about half of the country's total population. Many of these deaths were a result of forced labor conditions, of beatings, physical exhaustion, of famine and disease. Union Minière was, so to say, sort of symbol of Belgian economic activity in the Congo. But, of course, one, one should not forget there still was that huge discrepancy between the money which, which was used to pay the white employees of the Union Minière and, on the other hand, the money that was used to pay the black workers. In the 1940s, the late 1940s, you had about 1,100 white workers in the Union Minière, as against about 17,000 black workers. Well, let's realize and let's highlight that these 1,100 white workers cost 300 million to the company, the Union Minière. Well, the 17,000 black workers cost only between 180 million. Now, black employees of Union Minière were comparatively well paid to other Congolese at the time, but they were the laborers, working the grueling and dangerous jobs in the mines and on the machines, while the office jobs where decisions were made were for Belgians. Hardly any black worker managed to get to the, so to say, to the offices. There were no engineers trained. There was, no, there was not a single black engineer of the Union Minière at the eve of the decolonization, at the eve of the independence of the Congo. The vast bulk of these Congolese were, of course, kept in the lower levels of the uh, society's hierarchy. The Belgians were in the opinion that they would remain in the Congo for decades, uh, maybe for 50 or, or 100 years. And they were <laughs> living with a false idea that the Belgian Congo would not be touched upon by decolonization, which was, of course, proving to be extremely wrong. This mid-20th century 
is Africa's. In 1957, Ghana gained independence from Britain with the leadership of Kwame Nkrumah, who called for a pan-African movement against colonialism. This decade is the decade of African independence. Followed by Guinea, Cameroon, Togo, Mali, Senegal, Madagascar, and on June 30th, 1960, the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Combatant de l'indépendance, aujourd'hui victorieux, je vous salue au nom du gouvernement congolais. And the charismatic nationalist Patrice Lumumba became the country's first prime minister. As independence approached and it sort of was inevitable, the white-ruled Belgian parliament passed a law that basically allowed Congolese-listed or domiciled companies to become Belgian overnight, depriving the newly independent state of basically their most important assets. Think of it this way. After 75 years of extracting Congo's natural resources, the Belgian officials were looking to protect as much of the wealth generated in Congo as they could. The richest province of them all, the Katanga, separated itself from the rest of the Congo, precipitating the whole country into a deep chaos. When that province declared independence, 10 days or so after Congo's independence, the Union Munier immediately telex Brussels and said, we're going to give all of our tax payments, including some in advance, to this newly independent state and not to Congo itself. Before the independence, about one quarter of all colonial treasury revenue came from this one company, this single company, the Union Munier, because there were um, uh, commercial taxes on the export of the copper. With the secession of the Katanga region, the legitimate Congolese authorities lost a quarter of the state's revenue. And the Katangan authorities, who were not recognized by any country in the world, were supported by Union Minière. Of course, you have to add that it was not only the Union Minière, but that other Belgians and Belgian organizations also helped the Katangan authorities to survive. Researchers and historians would find out what Union Minière bosses thought about Congolese independence in detail. Decades later at the company's archives, which are in an old warehouse in a depot near central Brussels, that's where Neil went this summer. The archives they hold there are immense. It stacked up, it would be like a 57-story building. And I just kind of started leafing through these kind of translucent onion skin telexes. And reading through them, what you can see is a, an organization that uh, hated the idea of independence, was sort of very wary of their assets being seized. Um, they seethed with loathing for Lumumba and communism and clearly had a firm grip on Katanga and uh, were really open generally uh, talking about their sort of plans for what they would describe as what was best for Katanga and for the company and uh, for Belgium and for Congo more generally. So one of the letters that stood out to me as I was kind of looking through these stacks of papers was from 1957, in which the company's longtime Africa director, Jules Cousin, uh, who had been working for the company since 1911, he'd kind of built UMHK into the dominant company that it was. 
And he wrote to a colleague, divide and rule is an adage of more than 2,000 years. By pushing for the creation of a single Congolese nation, we are opening the doors for our exit. If we want to maintain our grip on our colony, we must have certain means to fight against the nationalism which will develop more and more. So if we do nothing to avoid the institution of a single Congolese nation, we will have the fate of all the countries that have claimed their independence. That is to say that they will expel us and seize everything that we have created here in Congo. That's what they were fighting against for the next kind of five years. Uh, you know, seeding propaganda, funding political parties. At some point, I opened one of the folders in one of the boxes. The first page was this political poster. So I unfolded it and it was this, it's this amazing image of Lumumba getting kicked out of Congo while holding a suitcase that says Moscow. It's basically implying he's a communist puppet, which is all UMHK was saying and what they were feeding into media in Congo at the time. They thought, and they weren't wrong, that they could lose everything, basically, which helps explain you know, the pretty extreme measures they went to to prevent independence. I mean, divide and conquer, right? In Moscow, where such scenes are rare unless propaganda is served, demonstrators converge on the Belgian embassy. Nationalists had led Congo to independence, but Katanga, with the support of Union Minier, seceded. A coup ousted Lumumba, and a proxy war between the U.S. and USSR played out in the country in a series of civil wars. The slaying of Patrice Lumumba, deposed Congo premier, touches off worldwide demonstrations. Small groups of students and others... Then, in 1961... Patrice Lumumba was assassinated. This assassination that I mean, transformed Congo forever, but also in many ways, it kind of killed the dream of African pan-nationalism, uh, some academics argue. The history of Congo since then has been one of conflict, corruption, and poverty, an emblem of what many call the resource curse, this idea that the countries that produce our raw materials, think of oil, diamonds, and cobalt, remain impoverished even as their resources enrich foreign companies. But fast forward to 2001, when a Belgian commission finished its investigation into Lumumba's assassination and found that the country had a, quote, moral responsibility for the circumstances that led to the death of Lumumba. This is where we return to the story of Union Minier and where Neil took his reporting this summer, asking what responsibility the company had for the legacy of this colonial past. Union Minier opened up its archives for the Lumumba Commission. It changed its name from Union Minier to Umicor, which today is a materials and technology company. It's, I think it's got a market cap of about eight and a half billion euros. It makes germanium wafers that go in solar panels, and it refines cobalt that goes in Teslas and uh, recycles lithium batteries. It's a materials technology company that doesn't manage any of those Congolese assets anymore. They acknowledge, you know, that they have this shared history with Union Minier, that they have been open about it. They published a history book in 2006 by two respected Belgian historians who, who cover what the company calls kind of dark chapters in their history, though, you know, the book is, is in many ways a story of triumph um, and sort of what the company is today. I spoke to the chairman of Umicor, Thomas Lazen. You know, the company in many ways feels like it has done its part. 
the way that the chairman kind of described it to me. And some activists would argue, you know, do argue that legalities aside, companies like Umicore wouldn't be what they are today. And this is true of companies like Unilever uh, or uh, Brussels Airways, who also have colonial histories. You know, assets can be stripped or sold, uh, companies can be merged or divested, but if this dark chapter, these kind of dark chapters form some part of the foundation, then it must be accounted for. Uh, and, you know, some would argue monetarily. The chairman was pretty clear that this isn't the same company that was active in Congo. And so because it's a different company, that argument doesn't apply to it. Meanwhile, the events of this summer, King Philippe expressing his regrets to the Congo, that spurred a parliamentary commission to re-examine the country's colonial legacy. The commission will also be exploring whether reparations are a suitable response. When the Royal Museum, which is colloquially known as the Africa Museum, underwent renovations a couple of years ago, Anne Wetsi Impoma was on a commission to help decolonize that space. Now she's advising the Parliamentary Commission on how Belgium should account for its colonial past. In the end, it's very simple. I expect this commission to really acknowledge the truth about the history of Belgium. And the history of Belgium is directly linked to the history of the Congo. I want them to acknowledge the brutality they treated a Congolese population with. I want them to acknowledge the economic profit they made upon the Congo, the Rwanda and the Burundi. I want this commission to acknowledge the consequences that Central Africa is still facing today. And I want them to acknowledge that the colonialism is still present today and is really making people from uh, with African descent as uh, sub-citizens, and it has to stop. Neil wrote a long piece on the legacy of Union Minière and Belgium's colonial reckoning for the FT Weekend magazine. We've linked to it in the show notes. Behind the Money is produced by Oluwakemi Aladesui, our sound engineer is Breen Turner, and our editor is Liam Nolan. We also had help from Persis Love. We'll be back next week. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellincat.com.